I'm Ayelet Waldman. I'm Paul Waldman. This is Boundary Issues. Welcome to Boundary Issues, the podcast where two siblings solve all the world's problems while blaming each other for their own. Hi, yeah. Paul. So I have a question for you. Lay it on me. <laughs> We're going to be talking today about the media and about the way the media shapes your point of view in a more toxic direction. Well, shall I ask you whether you're a part of this hellscape or shall I just accuse you of being part of this hellscape? Since you once told me you wrote something like a hundred thousand words about Donald Trump. It's actually much more than that. Oh my Uh, God, dude, that's so depressing. (laughs) I did a back of the envelope calculation and over the time between, let's say 2015 and 2020, I wrote about a million words about Donald Trump. What? Now, for those who don't know what that represents, if you buy a book that's say 250, 300 pages, that's probably about a hundred thousand words. So it's like I wrote 10 books. And the reason was that for much of that time, I was writing sometimes 10 or 11 columns a week at the Washington Post and at the American Prospect, and Trump was kind of my muse. And I am pretty sure that there isn't anyone in America who wrote as much about him. So how are you not, how do you not feel full full of overwhelming shame and horror at this calamity that you have helped perpetrate? There's two ways to think about it. I think that on one hand- there are two ways to think about it? At least. Go on. uh, (laughs) On one hand, he was of obviously became the president. He his story yeah, is the most you. important political story of in decades. <laughs> and somebody has to document the atrocities. You know, on the other hand, and this is something I, I think about all the time, frankly, is there's a real impulse toward just rage bait because that gets clicks. People like it. Uh, and I try very hard not to just do pieces that are nothing but here is an appalling thing that some Republicans said yesterday, I want to draw out some kind of larger lesson about how politics works or what's important, how this will affect people's lives. But there's a huge amount of that kind of rage bait. And I will admit that sometimes that's my starting point. And I also know that when I'm angry, I'm more creative, I'm more motivated. The words will just pour right into my keyboard. But it's something that I... I worry about all the time, am I just making the world worse? A sort of a related question is, am I just giving people who already agree with me what they want to hear and not really providing any further enlightenment beyond that? And I don't really know what the answer to that question is. Um, it's well, maybe I still at the end resolved. of this hour, you will know. And perhaps at the end of this hour, you will completely change your ways and you will spend the rest of your career writing about bunny rabbits. That's or... possible. Let's <laughs> let's leave that as a possibility. All right, I have a question for you. I noticed that your family used to have a Tesla, but Tesla is no longer cool in certain quarters. <laughs> it may be cool in other quarters. You know, I wrote a piece about this about the Tesla Cybertruck, which I refer to as the douche mobile. <laughs> now, Tesla used to signal that you were environmentally conscious and technologically savvy. But now that Elon Musk has become a toxic edgelord, it signals something very different. And I noticed that you now have a different electric car. So my question is, what kind of virtue are you currently trying to signal? Okay, first of all, 
The Tesla was not about virtual signaling. It's about having an electric car, which is a virtue, not a virtue signaling. And having an electric car that could make it all the way to LA and back. That was literally all we wanted to do. I have some other things I want to say about that Tesla. Yes, we got rid of it because Elon Musk is a piece of shit. But that's not virtue signaling either. That's just the guy's a piece of shit and the lease was up. And the last thing we we're going to do is give more money to the piece of shit. That's one. Number two, horribly, horribly, I loved that Tesla. I loved it so much. It wasn't that much more than the Toyota Prius, to be clear, in terms of the lease price. Just saying. Here's what I loved about it. I like to call it auto drive. You could call it suicide pact. I love that auto drive so much. I loved that I could just turn it on and then space out. I know, admittedly, yes, it was inevitably going to get me killed. But here's the best story. Okay, so middle beginning of COVID, totally freaking out, right? We all think we're going to die. And I had to go pick up my son, Zeke, and his daughter, his girlfriend, my hopefully one day daughter-in-law, Nadia, from LA because they had come from, they had evacuated to LA. They had spent two weeks there quarantined and I was going to pick them up and take them home. But I had to drive down the Tesla, right? Because we're not going to fly. And, but I was also terrified that I was, I, could, I was afraid to go to a bathroom. So this is what I did. I got a bunch of adult diapers. I got in the Tesla. <laughs> when I had to pee, I put the car on auto drive. I got undressed in the driver's, from the waist down, put on an adult diaper, peed, took it off, put it, they're very absorbent, by the way, very, like, that is an excellent product. Put it in a gallon-sized Ziploc bag, got dressed again. This worked flawlessly every time I, wait, and you, didn't, you have a question? And you didn't pull over to do no! this. You just did it in motion, you know 70 like miles an hour. You pull over on the side of the five? You will get killed. They're semi-trailers. So I'm like, on auto drive, peeing and doing this whole elaborate Ziploc situation. And all went stupendously well until a semi-trailer drove by me. And of course, from their vantage point, way above me, could look down and watch this entire operation. But you know what? I didn't care. I survived that journey intact. So that is why I loved my Tesla. You know what this reminds me of is that story about the astronaut. Yes, it is exactly that down story. To go after her ex in Florida or whatever. But as I recall, she didn't actually use the diapers. She just brought them with her. They're, she should have used them. They're so absorbent. This is a really high quality product. You know, and in fact, after that, I was like, maybe I should just integrate this into my life because I spent so much time trying to beg cafes and restaurants and whatever into letting me use their disgusting public bathroom. I already have like enough OCD about public bathrooms anyway, even before COVID. This would just solve my problems completely if it weren't for the kind of bulkiness and general weirdness associated with the way it looks. I would, it was also kind of pleasant. It was like warm. Anyway, I highly recommend. That is why I like my Tesla. And now I have a Polestar and it is electric and I will always have an electric car because I don't like going to the gas station. You know, yes, there's all sorts of problems with the battery, uh, but having an electric car is something we can do. But also I would like to point out, I have one car for Michael and me. 
Before we leave the topic of the diapers, first of all, they should put that into their marketing, no question. But I also have a pro tip. Oh, somebody I dated in my 20s used to have this trick where she would go into a restaurant or a store and say, excuse me, I'm pregnant and I, I really need to use the bathroom. Would it be okay? And they would let her do it every time. So that's just one for you out there. Yeah, that doesn't work when you are uh, in your late 50s. People would mostly be like, let us alert the media. All right, let's introduce our guest. We are joined today uh, by Danigal Goldthwaite-Young, who is a professor of communication and political science at the University of Delaware. Among other things, she is an expert in politics and the media, political psychology, and political comedy. Uh, her first book was Irony and Outrage, the Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States. And her la latest book is called Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Search for Misinformation. So, Dana, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk to you both. Why don't we start here with the way that you start the book? You start with a topic that is very personal and about which I know you've been very open and frank, uh, even in public. So maybe you could tell that story that you start the book with and how it ended up leading you to writing about this topic. Sure. So, Paul, you and I were at the Annenberg School for communication at the University of Pennsylvania around the same time. I think I was there 99 to 2007. I believe we overlapped by a few years. Yes. Okay. I started earlier than you did. Yeah. He's and very old. He's so old. <laughs> so uh, let's see. So I, I married my husband, Mike, in 2003. We had our baby in 2004. And in 2005, um, my husband was diagnosed with a what was called a benign brain tumor, but it did end up taking his life the following year. And the reason I start the book with that is because in those early days after his diagnosis in October 2005, and in the months following, you know, he had a, a surgery in November, and then he had 12 subsequent surgeries and was hospitalized um, through 2006 until he died in July. But in those first couple of months. I was so beside myself and had a hard time getting out of bed, as many would. Mm -hmm. um, and where I found my energy and my momentum was in conspiratorial thinking about his illness. So I started looking online at possible causes for craniopharyngioma. I started thinking about whether or not there were environmental causes because we had just moved into a new house. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, we've been here a month. Maybe he caught this or something. Uh, turns out that's not how it works. I started to consider if there were patterns within his work because he was at an office of several hundred. And I thought maybe there are other folks who have had similar things. There were people who had cancer diagnoses, but they were about actually the same rate as they are in the population at large. So that answer was also no. And then you get to the point where you start thinking, like after the first surgery, and it, you know we still are having problems. Could there could this be inadequate care? Should I be mad at the doctors? And what happened through those beliefs was a real sense of momentum that I didn't have in the early days of his diagnosis. I had something to do with myself. There was a target to my feelings. In uh, political psychology, we study anger a lot, 
And, you know, Paul, in, in the beginning of the show, you alluded to the fact that anger was a mobilizing emotion for you. It mobilized you to write. It mobilized your creative energy. Anger is different from other negative emotions like fear or anxiety because it's an approach emotion and it causes us to to move forward. And there's a target there. So when you believe in conspiracy theories, which are generally perpetrated by powerful entities in the shadows doing things to harm people and help themselves, there's an automatic target to your feeling of anger. So anger makes us feel optimistic, but it never really follows through on its promise because it especially in belief in conspiracy theories, because there is no there there, you never are fully satisfied because it never actually gets you anywhere. So fortunately, we had this very supportive group of friends and family, artists, academics, entertainers, um, and their kind of ethos was very much meeting Mike where he was, helping him in the hospital, making sure he's comfortable, bringing music, meeting him for dinner, creating a calendar so that he was never alone at dinner time when I had to be home with the baby. And so I satisfied my needs. What are at the center of my book now are these three needs for comprehension, control, and community. I satisfied those three needs in different ways than through conspiracy theory beliefs. I did it through connection with friends and caring for Mike and creating a schedule. And what created what created that shift, though, from conspiracy theory thinking to more productive ways of approaching the situation and the crisis was the social norms of my community, which told me that, you know, we, we don't do conspiracy theories here. Like that's not how we, that's not how we deal with this. That's not how we make sense of this. So that's kind of the guiding narrative. It's very, it's very vulnerable because I have realized through my own work that vulnerability is what moves people And a lot of social science is written as though it is outside of the world looking in, where social scientists are holier than thou and somehow um, not subject to the things that we research. And that's not true. So when I had written an essay in Vox that got a lot of great responses and emails, so that became the the beginning of the book itself. So you think about revealing yourself in this way as something that is not just about personal, you're, you actually have a sort of a professional pedagogical reason why you want to do that. And I know this. Correct. I, yeah. We know that that is what people respond to, especially when you're looking at this giant political cultural divide that overlaps with higher ed as well. Professors and experts are looked at with suspicion. And when I come at these issues as a person in the world, it changes some of those identity cues. And I feel like people are better able to hear. They're better able to see me as a person. And I'm not talking down. I'm not, you know, because all all of these dynamics affect everyone. So so it's helpful. Ayelet and I have a long running, somewhat disagreement about this with regards to our own work. Now, we're not academics. I'm a refugee from academia. But Ayelet has been much more open about bringing personal things about her life and her family into her writing. And I have always been very resistant to that. And I mean, but I think so go ahead. I'm, I think almost like definitely to a fault. There are definitely things that I've revealed that I'm now sorry about. But I, you know, it's interesting that you say that because that you had this very conscious approach to it, right? You made a decision 
to expose yourself, to be vulnerable. And I think when I first began this, it wasn't so much of a decision. It was just how I wrote. I had no experience writing, so I just kind of spilled out that stuff. But eventually I started to realize that I was constructing a character. So there's me and the character I've constructed is very much me, but it's not all of me so that I can retain a little bit of myself. I mean, there are things that I'm totally regret. Like I was way too revelatory about my children. Although I always ask their permission, you know, what does it mean when a five-year-old gives you permission or a 10-year-old gives you permission? Um, I made some mistakes, as Paul knows with my media family. But it is kind of, you know, I do think that the the writing that I've done has had more of an effect because it's personal. I'm both negative and positive. Like, you know, there have been times where people have reveled in hating me. Gawker used to be, I would be like, oh, do I want to go on Gawker today and see what shitty thing they've said about me? But on the other hand, there are essays that I've written that I think are really helpful. I, you know, we had a home invasion and an attempted sexual assault of me in our house at the beginning of COVID. And writing about, at that moment, writing about prison abolition, prosecution from the point of view of someone who had just gone through this horrible experience was really, I think it was much more effective than it would have been just putting together like a dry analysis of the effectiveness of the carceral system. So um, I admire that. I really do admire that you started this way. And it's so interesting to me that someone so intelligent could find themselves in this space that we think of as so, you know, like crazy town. But it's all of us all the time. Right. And I, I will say that when I, throughout Mike's illness, I did maintain a blog and there was a, somehow it ended up with a huge following. And I received emails for years afterwards telling me how helpful it was just mm -hmm. talking about my journey through grief and trauma and then, you know, remarrying and then having another baby. And so I, I, I very early on learned that I have a voice and that people get some kind of hope or inspiration, especially if they're going through similar things. And that felt like a real gift that I had been given through this situation. So I always knew I re would revisit that. I have never written my memoir, although I am working on revisiting it because I've just started doing like intense trauma therapy. Because as you say, there's the version of you that you put out to the world. The version of me that I put out to the world, she has her shit fully together now. <laughs> Right. But the, the reality is, is a lot different from that. So, but I feel like the journey itself is the journey that everyone's on and everyone's going to have crisis in their, in their lives. And everyone is going to fall in pits from time to time. And if, if we have the ability to write about that in a way that is empathetic and has self-compassion, that might encourage other people to be empathetic and have self-compassion. So, so what is you know, that process? Oh, sorry, Paul. I was just going to ask you, like, what is that process that pushed you to that place? Like that pushed you to the place that you write about in the book, like being wrong. What is, I mean, I'm not necessarily you personally, but just sort of generally, because I see this happening in myself right at this moment. Like I was talking about that Israel-Palestine stuff. I've been doing Palestine human and civil rights work for decades and like very involved, very, very involved. But 
my reaction puts me in this position where the stuff that's coming in on my social media, the stuff, the news, the not, not just what's coming in, what I'm looking at, like what I'm searching out in the newspapers is so different than what it would have been before October 7th. And I find myself creeping toward, like, for example, the conclusion that there's so much anti-Semitism in the American, in American academia, which I don't know if that's true. So what, what yeah. happens in our mm -hmm. brains that makes us do that? So what you're describing actually is a microcosm of, or a great example really of, of what the dynamics are there at the heart of, of the book, which is that I talk about social identity being one of the key drivers of our attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors. Now, we've always known this, that what team we identify with at a given moment, which, which is malleable, of course, right? Like we're not just team X or team Y or team Z and they can coexist, but how we think of ourselves in a given moment is contingent on the context that we're in, what's going on around us. Most viscerally, it's contingent on our perception of threat to one of our particular social identities. So what's gone on in your situation is that October 7th changed the calculus, probably not just psychologically, but maybe even psychophysiologically, because mm -hmm. you are recognizing that your team is under physical threat. And that changes how we think of ourselves, right? Now it's like, you know, you're someone who does the social justice work, but you're I, identifying yourself as an American Jew is probably now the hat that you are wearing more frequently because of that perception of threat, which is understandable, right? Now, when that identity is salient, it puts on a pair of glasses for us. It literally changes what we see. And there's amazing work out of NYU by Jay Van Bevel and his colleagues doing experiments where they manipulate which social identity people are thinking about themselves as, and then having them engage with various stimuli to see how they perceive it, how they feel about it, even how food tastes. And the results are significant, right? So we talk in social science about how all of our observations of the world are theory laden, right? We don't come to observations of the world neutrally. We always have pre-existing beliefs and theories that are informing what we see. I argue that our observations are also identity laden. So who we are as a member of a team is going to shape what we see and how we see it, because even our epistemology or how we come to truth is shaped by what team we're on, um, mm. especially in the context of American politics where the right is the side of intuition and gut and faith, and the left is the side of evidence and data. And now that doesn't necessarily mean that those are the cognitive pathways that are used to come to truth, but those are the ways of coming to truth that they express valuing on either side. So, so this is kind of how this engine runs. That's so interesting. I'm going to let Paul ask a question because normally I don't, but it's a podcast, <laughs> so I will step back and allow him to ask maybe one question, but maybe a few more. Go. Thank you. I really do appreciate that. It's very kind of you. And then you. What, what I wanted to ask, Dan, is that we're talking about sort of the part of the identity we, that we project to the world in addition to what we think of with ourselves. But one of the things that 
is true now with social media is that almost everybody has this version of themselves that they're projecting to the world. And even if they're not going out there on whatever social media they're on, Instagram or whatever, and showing pictures of their kids or talking about very personal things, they're still, they still have a persona that they are projecting in what they say they like, how they respond, what kind of voice they're using, which is not going to be, you know, the voice you use in your, on Twitter or Instagram or whatever is not going to be your true voice. It may be a reflection of your true voice, but now everybody has this kind of public persona that goes beyond their ordinary public persona. This is what sociologist Irving Goffman wrote about many decades ago, that we have a backstage self and a front stage self, right? Just as we go through the world, we go to work, wherever, you know, we go into a store and we talk to the clerk there. We have this persona that, we, that we're presenting to other people, which might be different from the one that when we're, we're just at home or with our family or whatever. But even beyond that, now we have a persona that we're projecting to strangers and that is intended for strangers. Um, so I wonder how that affects uh, the kinds of things that we're talking about. Yeah, so I'm going to answer that by tapping into three different areas here. One is, first, just for a quick second, let's think about how all of these dynamics were exacerbated through COVID where we couldn't interact with people face-to-face -face, and most of our interactions were online. So our performances, this is how we often, a lot of scholars in the field talk about social media as as performance oriented because it is we are we are curating a construction of ourselves we are performing a particular identity so that was the identity that most of us were kind of left with outside of like maybe our spouses or roommates or kids like the rest of the interactions were very performative um, Jamie Settle, uh, who is a political scientist at William & Mary, wrote a book called uh, Frenemies about, in particular, how Facebook changes the way that individuals think of themselves politically. And she has a framework in the book that I discuss in my book as well called the END framework, which stands for engagement, news, and discussion. And she argues that the way that social media requires us to be always engaged and performing our social identity in the same context that we are receiving news, commenting on news and sharing news, and then discussing news and how we feel about it all in the same space results in a process that is ultimately polarizing because the people who are most likely to do this in the first place tend to be the people who are more politically extreme in their views, right? And so our current media environment really is a bummer for the normies. The normies <laughs> and the moderates get left out of everything, right? Because who is, who is incentivized to participate are the people on the fringes because they're the ones who have a lot to say. They're very passionate. So the economics of social media and regular media really are rewarding those kinds of performances. So in Settle's book, she describes with actually a lot of data how this operates and how it can result in polarized views and also exaggerated perceptions of what average outgroup members look like. So we will tend to come away from our social media experiences feeling that the average Republican on the other side or the average Democrat on the other side is a complete wackadoodle nut job fringe, like who never misses an election. And that's just not the case. The other thing I want to bring into this, though, to explain why these identities seem to be not just online but kind of omnipresent is what's probably been the most uh, influential area of research for me 
has been the work of Lily Mason and others on this process of social sorting of the two political parties, right? Where over the last 50 years, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party aren't just two coalitions of voters that have different policy positions on issues, but the parties have become home to different categories of people, obviously starting with the sort of racial realignment in the 60s into the 70s and the 70s. And then the Heritage Foundation's creation in the 1970s, really looking to engage evangelical Christians politically, bring them into the Republican Party. So you have this sort of, do you ever watch um, The Price is Right? Where you know, R.I.P. Bob Barker. Deep cut, Dana. Deep, I'm sorry. Deep I'm sorry. I know. As soon as I say the price is right, like it's everyone still, tastes still on like TV. I know. I know. No, but right. not with Bob Barker. But you remember the Plinko board where the, those things would kind of you drop in the chip and it, where's it going to land? Where's it going to land? You know. Uh-huh. And if it lands in the $500 slot, you get $500. Well, this right. is like a Plinko board, right? But all of the little round things are different kinds of people, and the the at the bottom there's just. Re- on the Republicans on the right and Democratic bin on the left. And the chips have sorted into two parties. So the Republican Party is homogeneously white, evangelical Christian, rural dwelling, and culturally conservative, while the Democratic Party is more diverse. Now, it's more diverse because it's racially and ethnically diverse. It's secular agnostic. There's still some church-going folks in the Democratic Party, of course, there's folks who live in, in rural areas, but more suburban and urban areas, and they're more culturally liberal. But I argue that because of that homogeneity of identity on the right, where pretty much you're looking around at folks who really look like you, they worship like you, they live in the country, wheat fields like you, you know, the engine of social identity runs really fast there, which means that you're your political identity is not, sometimes it's not even about policy positions, right? Sometimes it's really just about how people like us live, how we live, what we like, what we value, what we do with our time. And that's then completely about identity. That's completely about performance. It's about expression. It's about in-group and out-group threat. What it's less about, and this is why I do have hope, it's less about specific policy solutions to issues. The problem is that the homogenous and salient social identity on the right is also super readily ignited. It's super readily mobilized. It's super readily threatened, and it can be put to work very easily. But Dana, why does that give you hope? I feel like it makes things more hopeless because if it's if you could appeal to people for their like on policy, then there's hope. But if if it's like oh, I'm a Republican because I hate libs or I hate gay people. Or By the way, I should say that by my house in Maine, there's a, there was a house this summer that had a Confederate flag in Maine, the state that lost the most soldiers to the Union. I don't know whether proportionally or actually. And a rainbow flag. And I'm telling you, the entire <laughs> Phil Converse would exploded. lose his mind. We were just like, yeah. I don't what is understand. Happening? What is happening? <laughs> well, so, so think about it this way, though. You know, when you find those moments, where you're like, wait a second, how can you how can you put both those eggs in that same basket? Isn't there a part of you that's like, oh, there's an inroad there. There's yeah. an inroad there because I here, here's regretted not knocking on the door. Right. And just knock on the door. Homophobic 
Are you a, are you a gay racist or are you like, which are you? I well, just yeah. need to know what's going on there because I, I am hopeful because the whole alignment of these primal identities is bad. It's bad for a thousand reasons. And democratic theorists will tell you go to democracies where, you know, the parties are correlated with religion or race and you will find democracies that are eroding or dead. It's bad. However, because of the way these sort of policy votes shape or kind of shake out, I feel like if we could use our individual agency to change the calculus of some of these processes related to media and politics and political appeals, there's room to move. I look at Kansas, a state that is reliably red, right, that put the the referendum um, after Roe was overturned, they put the abortion referendum to their voters. And they were like, we know you're going to make abortion unlawful because you are reliably red. And they lost by 19 points. Mm -hmm. I look at some of the, the debates around guns. If you look at people's actual policy positions around guns, I mean citizens, I don't mean elites. Because we know that at the level of elites, the voices that you hear are voices that are black or white. Because those fringe views, what? They are the ones that create the most like moral evaluations of what's good and bad. They're the ones that get the most media attention. They're the ones that are most incentivized through social and cable media economics and logics. But regular folks, regular folks are so much more complex. So- I still have faith also in our mainstream journalistic institutions because journalists, real journalists, I don't mean like all the the commentator, like, like analysis shows on Fox, but when you look at folks who work in newsrooms, there is a commitment to democratic health. There is a commitment to American democracy in theory. The question is, are you willing to engage in practices that are themselves democratically healthy. Yeah, well, so you know, one it, of, right, go, you go, one of the things that you talk about in the book is how conservatives have the phrase you use as an identity distillation apparatus. So all of the, especially the conservative media, but I think this is true of liberal media, which is much less influential than conservative media is, but it's, but it is true there too, is that so much of what goes on there is about reinforcing those lines of identity. I mean, if you watch Fox, it is a daily instruction in why you should never trust liberals for anything they are. They're out to get you. They're out to destroy your way of life and everything you believe in and everything they're, you They're going to turn your children transgender. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, so many of the messages, and as you say, that gets reinforced on social media too, because nobody puts up a post on social media saying, I'm not really sure what I think about this issue, but I'm going to learn more before I decide. Like, <laughs> did you see that? I literally put that up the other day. Did you about <laughs> about well, the good for you? Well, but because, the truth because is, but yeah. did but did you wait, how wait, many wait, likes did it get? It was so it was on. I put it up. On, I, I'm I'm really in a crisis over what to do with Twitter, so I'm posting more on Blue Sky. Yeah, I put up a post basically like, look, I don't know where I sit on the Liz McGill thing. I found her answer in the congressional hearing to be not just insufficient, but cowardly. And clearly there's issues there. But I also know that Stefanik was using it as an opportunity to bury higher ed. So yeah, get, get, I'm ambivalent. 
And I am saying that as someone who work, works in these spaces a lot, and you can't you can't reserve your respect for people that have really loud, crystal clear opinions on issues. And I think that we tend to do that because they tend to be the ones who speak with most confidence. I am confident that I am ambivalent and I should be allowed to be that way. And, what and it should response? be rewarded. Was the response? Um, there were, um, you would not be surprised. There were a couple of folks who were like, you know, obviously you're on the wrong side. Clearly mm-hmm. she needs to, you know, clearly Penn is bowing down to these rich interests, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there were a lot of folks who work in the space that I work in who were like, yes, I like this. And I'm, I appreciate you saying it. It's okay to not know something. And it's okay to think, you know, here's my view on this right now, but I'm open to the possibility I could be wrong. And I'm looking for information relevant to this belief to tell me whether or not it needs to be updated. Well, one of the things we know from social psychology, and you've done work on this, is that uh, liberals and conservatives tend, not everybody, but tend to have kind of different personality traits. One of the things that tends to be characteristic of liberals is that they have a greater tolerance for ambiguity. That's why they're, they're I'm sorry. as you have- what? as you Hold on a second. Have you I'm, visited Berkeley, I'm, California? That's, I'm, I'm getting there, so okay, hold on. Okay. So, so that's what has traditionally been the understanding is that that's why, as you have written about, Dana, that liberals are attracted to, to different kinds of humor than conservatives. <laughs> and that's why, you know, liberals tend to be more interested in certain kinds of art and travel and things like that. And conservatives tend to be more likely to value order and predictability and hierarchies and things like that. So that's supposed to be the differing personality traits of liberals and conservatives. But as I yell, it suggests if you go online, the liberals look just as sure of themselves and just as intolerant of ambiguity as the conservatives. So have things changed? What's the story? When I look online, the especially given what's going on in Gaza, I'm just I'm right now I'm just taking in the information and I'm fascinated by it because one, it's disrupting what it means to have a liberal social identity. Right? The the people who are on the left are kind of fighting over what it means to be a good liberal. Is being a good liberal being anti-Israel? Is being a good liberal agreeing that Israel has a responsibility to defend itself? And the fact that those two things are on opposite sides is also odd. So that's happening. I also know that as much as there is this relationship between tolerance for ambiguity and and remember, it's, it's a social ideology. It's not... Um, Anything like fiscal ideology does not correlate with these psychological traits. It's all social and cultural ideology. We also know that tolerance for ambiguity, everything is a horseshoe in political psych as well. So the folks who are at the far left and the far right are also both less tolerant of ambiguity. So when you look at those linear relationships, it's a little bit uh, misleading because tolerance for ambiguity is very low on both poles I'm kind of fascinated by the folks, too, who are really looking for a populist leader who kind of jumped from Bernie to Trump. Like folks like that, I find kind of fascinating, too, Right, where they're they're angry. They want to rage against the machine and they want someone who's going to help them rage against the machine. So I'm in the College of Arts and Sciences. Remember, it's more art than science sometimes. <laughs> I yeah, and I think as as the nature of the threats in our political environment change, these relationships change. These dynamics change. 
I have one more important question. You know, your book is all about why people are gravitate toward things that are wrong and incorrect and lead them in bad directions. But what if I'm actually right about everything <laughs> and everyone else is just wrong? I mean, that's what I've always believed. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, my God. No, I know. have no idea. Know. This is so true. From the time he was like two, that's what he's always believed. Oh, the arrogance. Oh, my God. Look, look, wait, can I can I ask a question? Yeah. Have you ever written a column, Paul, where you've gone back and said, I said this and I was completely wrong? I think I've done it, but only in things that were really sort of trivial. <laughs> Not anything yeah. that where I got anything really big. You know with. what? Let's like, I think you should. I think that is an assignment. I feel like Danny's assignment a, and I'll come back exactly, and we'll she, talk about it. This is an assignment, Polly. She is a professor. You are not, though you do have your doctorate. So now you have to go dig and you have to write a mea culpa. Not even a mea culpa. No, like, not even no, a mea culpa. Even, just like, hey, I was wrong about this and here's why. Let, let me give you an example. Right. John Stewart recently said that, um, I mean, I can't quote it, but basically when Donald Trump announced that he was running for president in 2015, John Stewart was still on The Daily Show and he pretended to eat popcorn like, oh, this is going to be so fun because he's such a clown. He recently said, you know, one of my biggest mistakes was not taking Trump seriously from the beginning. And I warn others to not make that same mistake about some some of these leaders who seem outrageous and who seem ridiculous. That to me was the same kind of thing, recognizing wrongness. The thing that's amazing about recognizing your own wrongness is that it changes how you then subsequently view the world and come to make observations because your own humility has now been brought to the surface. So it's a good practice. Absolutely. This is All the right. challenge. We're going to practice humility. This was so fascinating and inspiring and frightening all at once. Just for those who may be tuned in late, our guest has been Danica Goldthwaite-Young of the University of Delaware. Her book, which you can buy wherever fine books are sold, is Wrong, How Media, Politics, and Identity Drive Our Search for Misinformation. All right. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Yay. Thanks. Boundary Issues is produced and edited by Paul Waldman. Our music is by Zeke Shabon. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at waldmanpodcast at gmail.com. And this is a listener-supported podcast. So if you'd like to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash boundaryissues. See you next time.